alma mater sends out a newsletter and they'll interview students that are fresh in the job market and they'll say, hey, what are things you like about your job? Inevitably, it's diversity. They like diversity of tasks. Very few people, I think, like to do the exact same thing for eight, nine, 10 hours a day. Welcome to Mitten Money, delivering insights from Michigan-based business leaders, big and small. William Zank, host of Mitten Money at TriStar Trust, loves nothing more than creating this masterclass so that you can get insight to guide your leadership journey in just under 30 minutes. Subscribe today and connect with William at mittenmoney.com. What's going on, everyone? You're listening to another episode of Mitten Money. I'm so happy today to be chatting about a pretty unique topic. Personally, I don't think it gets as much recognition as it should. This is something that easily separates the good companies from the great companies. Have any guesses what it should be? It's simple. It's talent. But more importantly, how can a company elevate and educate their current talent pool to be even better? For this topic, I invited on someone who's not only done an amazing job at this, but also has helped make his firm into an industry leader in what they do. This person is none other than Max Fryer, who's the current managing director and CEO of Call Deer Capital. Max does an amazing job describing some of the many ways he's been able to help his employees develop their talents. So this is an episode that you won't want to miss. So Max, for those who don't know your background, could you share a quick snapshot of your career so far? I know you've been a very successful entrepreneur for much of your life. And so for you, what started this passion? It's a great question. I guess probably two things catalyzed my entrepreneurial career. The first would be that out of college, I jumped into a sales position and I didn't go to school for sales or business, but I quickly fell in love with the thrill of the hunt, you could say. And I think that's extended a bit to my love of mergers and acquisitions, which is essentially you're kind of always chasing the next deal. And it really, at this point in my life, continues to thrill me. I think the second thing was I quit my last W-2 job in 2009, probably one of the worst times to do something like that. But a number of things in my life had cratered at that point. And I kind of had this distinct feeling of, I have nothing to lose. I felt like I was kind of at the bottom and the only way was up and I had no fear. So those are really probably the two things. There was the confidence and there was the catalyst of not really worrying about failing that got me started in entrepreneurship. From what you'd mentioned about the sales aspect, was there anything that really helped prepare you to be so successful within that sales aspect and being able to continue to go find what those next deals or those next opportunities could be for any of your other businesses or at least in your present business with Call Deer? In sales, I think first and foremost, you have to be prepared to be rejected. I don't know anyone in sales that has 100% closing rate or hasn't had the phone hung up on them or the door slammed in their face or a no-show for a meeting. So there's a bit of skin thickening that you have to be prepared for. I think once you realize just part of life in general, it's a little bit easier. And I would say, secondly, just being a real person, talking to people eye-to-eye, face-to-face, understanding that the person you're talking to has the same challenges and issues that you do, and really just trying to figure out if what you are selling is something that can help alleviate something that concerns them or accomplishes something that they want. And I guess thirdly, I would say, I believe to be successful in sales long-term, you have to believe in what you're selling. I've been in sales roles where I've been selling something I don't believe in. I wouldn't buy myself and it just didn't last very long and I was miserable. 
Sure, of course. No, that makes sense. I've heard plenty of people talk about in the past, there's a reason why you have two ears and one mouth. So you listen more than what you talk within any type of sales role or meeting. So that all makes good sense. I think success for any business out there largely depends on that talent base that an organization has. However, I think what separates good companies from great ones is the development of that talent. And so why do you think development of talent plays such a large role in business success? There's two answers I want to give. Development of talent, certainly if you're in something that's technical, the more time that is spent with someone, the more they're trained in that art. And that could be anything from manufacturing to financial analysis the better they're going to be prepared to deliver good results. The answer I would like to give that's been at least specific to my experience has been, and it's somewhat in contrast to the industry I'm in, and I guess maybe I'll give away a secret here, taking younger, energetic people that are in their 20s, they're in college or very soon to be graduating from college, and they are very ambitious. Not only are they sponges, but they want to work 10, 12, 14 hours a day and they're driven. And I would say that's in contrast to someone who's in my stage of life where I love working. I'm a workaholic and I don't mind putting in 14, 15 hour days, but I don't have the energy I did 20 years ago. And so working with them and then giving them opportunities that most people their age don't get. One of the ways that we develop talent is to let some of our younger guys who are interested in running deals start with some small deals start by partnering with somebody else that has some more experience and can coach them while they are thrown in the trenches to do a lot of the grinding work. So I think a lot of talent development is finding ambitious people, telling them that you believe in them, and then giving them opportunities to shine. How do you go about finding those potentially ambitious, younger college kids? And through that process, how are you able to go evaluate those different kids? Maybe there's two potential candidates they both have a lot of the same skills and potential experience. What are some of those key character traits that really help you set, hey, maybe this one can be a difference maker and maybe the other one might be better suited for a different role? That's a good question. We don't always, you know, not everyone that we recruit is a fit. We have gotten close with some of the business schools for some local universities. So Michigan State, Grand Valley, Rutgers, and Butler. We've had an intern from the East Coast that came out last summer. There's a program called Handshake that's out there that a lot of the schools are connected with where we can post internship opportunities as well as LinkedIn is a good way to recruit young talent. We are looking at their grade point average. We're looking at clubs and jobs they might be part of just as signs of people that are active. They wake up in the morning and they really don't want to sit still. I mean, they show their ambition and their experience. And we'll do a phone interview and we'll narrow it down to the top ones and we usually take a multi-person approach because we're looking for them to answer questions. We're looking for them to show that they are mentally able to pivot quickly, that they're intelligent. So it's a mix. And as I said, we don't always get it right. If we have two candidates that we're struggling over, we don't have a position for both of them. We have to go with our evidence and instincts and one wins and one doesn't. From that point on, we're looking for interns that then through the course of the internship show initiative, show drive, put their hand up, are not afraid to ask questions, are not afraid to track down some of the older advisors and prod them for how did they get where they are? What advice do they have? The people that are curious and motivated are the ones where we are going to talk internally and say, if we have an opening, that's someone that we would like to offer a position to. At what point would you start that education process? 
And then for someone who's ready to go move up from, let's say, an associate role into maybe a vice president role or more senior role at the company, how do you ensure that there's a smooth transition for someone? Because I can understand for some, it's tough that an employee now is going from A to B and they're having to go leverage a different set of skills for them to continue to be able to go succeed at their job. So to start with the first question on education, this goes along with what I said before about giving young people with energy and ambition opportunities. So education starts on day one with just understanding what does the company do? What are our processes? And then in their particular role as an intern, they're going to be typically digging into financials. So they're going to learn how to spread financials. They're going to learn how to pull data on valuation. They're going to learn how to put together valuation reports. And they're always going to be overseen by one or two people, even sometimes including myself, on the final product that we're going to be delivering to our prospect or our client. So the learning starts day one, depending on how they're wired. And there's a lot of diverse tasks. We try to just let them come in and absorb things. What I found is with myself, and one of the reasons I'm in this industry, my alma mater sends out a newsletter and they'll interview students that are fresh in the job market and they'll say, hey, what are things you like about your job? Inevitably, it's diversity. They like diversity of tasks. Very few people, I think, like to do the exact same thing for eight, nine, 10 hours a day. So we try to give young folks a lot of different tasks and that really enhances their ability to grasp the big picture and it lets them start to feel where they want to navigate to. And I do strongly believe that people kind of navigate towards certain things. And so what you might come into Calder doing isn't necessarily what you wind up doing. So that leads into your second question, which is how do you make that leap and how do you leverage different skill sets and all that? It comes down to you have an understanding when you've been here for three, six months of what a project manager, I guess maybe vice president does that's different than an analyst. And you put your hand up and you say, I wouldn't mind trying myself out in that role. And so it's really just a matter of then if you voice what you want and you're with the right people, I think that opportunity is going to come to you. And it's just a matter of filling a deficit that that might leave if you're now doing something else. So what I tell everyone is if you eventually want to do this, absolutely, you're going to get a shot to do it. But part of it is working with the rest of the team to find and train someone then to do the role that you were doing that so far has been very effective. Definitely sounds effective. And so switching topics now to talking about your business, I saw from your website that your company has been recognized as one of the fastest growing private companies in America. So outside of some of the things that we discussed earlier, what have been some of the ways your company has been able to grow so well? There's a couple of factors here. So one is my personality as the founder and owner. I have a growth personality. It's just not how I'm wired. I don't like being in a stagnant environment. So Part of it is just instinctually, I have to grow. Culturally, though, the spirit of the company trickle down from its owner or founder. So a lot of the people that we have in Calder are also growth-oriented. They want, they aspire to do more, to accomplish more. So one, I would say, would be cultural. Two, I would say, would be technological. So we've invested a lot over the past seven years in a CRM that now handles a lot of our administrative and marketing tasks in an automated way. A lot of that just comes down to automating follow-up, automating data collection, automating surveys, and probably with our CRM, it's probably doing the job of two or three people with less chance for human error. So that's been another way we've been able to scale. The other thing I should say about that is that a lot of these tasks like 
keeping track, following up via voicemail, via email, via text. These things can all be done using software, not to take the human element out of it, but when nine out of 10 buyers who inquire about an opportunity are never going to do anything with it. And that's statistically something we've tracked and that's metrics that are out there in the internet. You can't spend 52, 53 minutes of every hour with people that aren't going to move forward. Nothing against them. It just might not be the opportunity for them. You can't spend that amount of time without burning out. So you have to develop systems that take care of disseminating information, appropriately following up with buyers to make sure that they had the chance but you didn't have to have a warm body picking up a telephone to do it every single time. That's the technological side of the ability to scale. And we've built that out so that every advisor can tap into that and then therefore only spend their time dealing with buyers who are seriously interested. And I guess I would say the third would be KPIs. Maybe I'm a bit embarrassed to admit this, but we really didn't have a sales scorecard until the summer of 2020. So our revenue primarily comes from closing deals. So we started to track we want to be at X revenue, we've got to close X deals. Well, how many clients do we have to have? Well, how many evaluations do we have to present? Well, how many information requests do we have to send out? Well, how many meetings do we have to have? How many phone calls and emails do we have to send out through our marketing program? So it's really just tracking all those metrics. And that's going to be messy at first because you're working on assumptions, but over time, you start to see trends emerge and you start to better hone that detail. So I would say a year and a half or so into that, we now have a pretty slick sales scorecard, which when you know what you have to do, you make a choice whether to do it or not. And if you do it, you'll hit your growth goals. What was that decision process for you to invest further in technology to leverage it further to what you had mentioned? Now you have all these systems and processes automated to where you're able to go leverage having two or three additional people working for you without actually having that as an expense for you. What was that process like to decide, okay, let's go ahead and invest the money to be able to go leverage technology to use it to our fullest? This is my favorite question because you might think the answer is that I had some great vision back in 2013 and 2014, and that's actually not correct. I didn't. When I started the company, I was more or less alone for the first six months. And I thought to myself, how am I ever going to do more than four or five deals a year if it's just me, if I've got nothing helping? And so that was one of the thoughts I had. And the second is just quite honestly, I hate doing administrative work. If you think about our industry, if you're going to actively recruit buyers, which you should do because that's in the best interest of your client to stir up a marketplace by actively recruiting buyers, every single buyer that comes in, you may or may not know them. And chances are you're not going to know most of them. Now, most of the buyers that come in when we market an opportunity, we don't know who they are. They're people that have entered the market. Maybe they're an executive that's tired of working someplace else. Maybe they're a strategic buyer that's decided to grow via acquisition because organic growth is hard. Maybe it's a new family office that started. Maybe it's a new PE firm. So they come in. We don't know them. So we have to qualify them by asking them questions. They all have to sign an NDA. We have a background checking software. We may not use it on everyone, but there are things that have to happen that are the same for every single project. Most firms have a warm body doing all those things filing NDAs, wondering whether they got the NDA back. Did they get the NDA signed at all? Keeping track on an Excel spreadsheet, sending out the SIM, following up on the SIM. Oh, now their voicemail is filled because they're working on two projects. They have 40 buyers and they're on their knees because they don't have any more time in the day. So those are the epiphanies I had back during those days to say, well, what if we just streamlined all of this so that none of our advisors ever had to qualify a buyer, ever had to send an NDA out, ever had to send a SIM out? And quite frankly, 
don't even have to do a very good job of following up with buyers because the system does it for them. It was really selfishness. That's the reason that's really behind it. So at TriStar, while as a firm, we provide comprehensive wealth management services to our clients, at the center of all this are relationships. Building genuine relationships is something that we talk about every day. And I'm sure that you find relationships as a key part to being part of the community and at Caldera Capital. So can you talk a little bit about that and maybe share any examples you've experienced firsthand with regards to the importance of building relationships within your own career? It's really interesting because there's a couple of ways to look at our business. And first of all, when I read the questions that you sent, I thought my primary focus is now that the company is where it is, which is close to 30, is on relationships with the team. It isn't just Max slaying the next deal anymore. It's really working to help people to build their own network of sellers, help them become efficient, help them run as many deals as they want to run so that they can feel fulfilled and so that they can make as much money as they aspire to. So it's really keeping good relationships, keeping things tied with them, making sure that the rules are fair and transparent, letting people know that any problem or challenge, my phone is ready, my door's open, I'm ready to help them. I truly am their number one advocate. We're all in this together and I'm not successful unless they are successful. So my primary focus there is on that relationship. Now, relationships externally, very interesting. And this is just maybe a personality pro and or con. No one has the perfectly balanced personality. But when we started, most of our clients came from one referral source, which we had a good relationship with. And I appreciated that. And I appreciate it to this day because we still have a referral relationship with them and I have nothing but good things to say about them. But I became frustrated probably in 2015 or 16 because I felt like that was too much concentration with that one source. And so that was the catalyst to start a lot of aggressive, cold sales and marketing, which we still rely on today for a large amount of the inbound inquiries that come to us. So I think relationships, of course, are absolutely wonderful and great referral relationships and great customer relationships are actually pinnacle. I mean, one of the reasons people inquire on our site and one of the reasons that people refer other people to us is because our track record is good. I think that's a great answer. And so for those who want to learn more about yourself, Max, or your business, what are some good resources for the listeners out there? Well, I'd be flattered if people wanted to learn more about me. They might be disappointed though. I'm just a regular guy. In terms of the industry, there's a couple of really good resources that I look at every quarter. One is the IBBA's Market Pulse. IBBA stands for International Business Brokers Association and the Market Pulse. So it's really no more than six or seven pages. It succinctly goes through the aggregated survey answers from surveys sent out to about 300 M&A professionals. And it talks about where multiples are and valuation multiples. It talks about deal structure. It talks about what's driving buyers and sellers. It's talking about the dynamics of the market from that snapshot in time. And I think for anyone, particularly in the maybe Main Street to lower middle market, it's a very invaluable resource to understand buyer or seller what you're going to be facing in the market. I also like bizbysell.com as a clearinghouse, mostly for smaller businesses. They put out a quarterly insight report. And so if you just Google bizbysell insight report, it's more or less the same type of data, but it's for smaller opportunities. What I like about both of them is if you read them together, and they usually come out about the same time, you get a good snapshot for where is the small M&A market. Sounds good. So thank you again for listening to another episode of Mid Money. Please don't forget to follow our podcast so you don't miss when new episodes drop. Thanks, Max. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Mitten Money, sponsored by TriStar Trust. 
Subscribe to the podcast and learn more about how William and the TriStar Trust team can guide your small business at TriStarTrust.com. Trust.com.